Amen. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 9, if you will. This is healing school, and so we always teach during healing school something regarding the faith and or healing. And one of the things, well, the thing, without question, the greatest hindrance to people receiving their healing is a lack of knowledge, or maybe we should say that they're not fully convinced that healing is God's will for them. Faith begins where the will of God is known, F.F. Bosworth said, and he's exactly right. If you don't know what God's will is for you, then there's no way you can pray in faith for it to come to reality. And this story in John chapter 9 is one of the, um, one of the texts that people that don't believe that healing belongs to everybody, that Jesus didn't pay the price for our physical well-being, our physical healing, along with the price that he paid for forgiveness of sins. These scriptures are some of the ones that uh, are, are one of the primary ones, really, that people will argue that it's not God's will to heal everybody or that God sometimes puts sickness on people to teach them something. There are 19 different occasions where individuals were healed in Jesus' ministry. Now, I know it seems like there's more than that because some of the gospel writers give the same, give another view on the same healing or the same event. And it doesn't include the, the multitudes that were healed or different groups of people that were healed, like the ten lepers, for example. But in the four gospels, there are 19 individual cases of healing. And almost 70% of those Somewhere in the description of the things that took place, it identifies the faith of the individual. John's gospel gives us some different accounts or describes some different healing events that the, others, the other three gospel writers don't tell us. Now, we've talked about this a lot in relation to the Holy Ghost and, and other matters. But I trust that you have enough of a, a basic working knowledge of the New Testament to, real, to realize that John was the last of the gospel writers and he wrote the gospel that bears his name along with the book of Revelation somewhere around 90 to 95 AD, probably somewhere around 92, but we don't know for sure, so they give a, a range of three or four years perhaps that it could have taken place. Now Jesus was crucified in about 32 or 33 A.D. So that puts 60 some odd years between when Jesus was raised from the dead and even the events that are recorded here in the Gospel of John from the time that he wrote and left a record for the church of these things. John's Gospel is kind of different. Well, it is different, and it's different in several different ways. But one of the things that fascinates me about the Gospel of John is that John seems to fill in the gaps where some of the others left, left holes or left gaps. I hate to say it that way because every Gospel was inspired by the Holy Ghost and is therefore infallible. But John seems to, as I said, fill in the gaps in certain areas or certain things. And even the, um, the things that took place in Jesus' ministry that John gives us record of that the other gospel writers don't. There's a great deal of interest there on my part because it was something that the Holy Ghost saved till last. 
So in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, this is one of those healing events that John tells us about that none of the rest of the gospel writers do. Verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Folks, one of the things that it took the Jewish people thousands of years to figure out is that sin brings destruction. Under the old covenant, when Moses was the leader of the children of Israel, it seems like if you, if, and of course it covers a, a long span of time, but if we read through the book of Numbers, Exodus, Numbers, some of Deuteronomy, and some of the other accounts of Israel when they first came out of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, it seems like that these guys couldn't go more than two or three weeks without sinning against God and bringing some curse or some destruction upon them. They knew, or discovered at least, it just seems like they didn't listen to Moses and believe what he said in the beginning when Moses delivered the law to them and said, if we keep the law, then the blessing of God is upon us. If we break the law or disobey the law, then the curse comes upon us. You know, in my thinking, and I don't know, maybe we're different than they would be back then, but I don't think it would take me but one or two times to figure out which is the best way to go in that situation. I certainly wouldn't have experienced all the things that the Bible says about the children of Israel and their disobedience. It really makes you wonder how someone or a group of people could be that rebellious against God over and over and over again and not learn their lesson. Well, here's one thing that the disciples, who were certainly Jews themselves, the disciples recognize that sin opens the door to sickness and disease. Now, they don't know whose sin it was. And that's their question. They don't ask Jesus, is sin the cause of this? They seem to understand what a lot of the church world, modern-day church world doesn't understand or doesn't accept. And that is that sin is the origin of sickness and disease. We know that has to be so because of the Bible account of creation tells us that God made everything that he made within the first six days and then he made an end of all that he created. The Bible is very clear in telling us that in six days God finished everything he created and then he stopped. Well, where was sickness? If sickness is of God, then God had to create it in one of those first six days. But God gets to the end of the sixth day and looks at everything and says it's very good, meaning perfect. It's just the way that I wanted the kingdom of God to be on the earth. And there's no sickness to be found. Sickness only shows up after man falls. After sin enters the world, then sickness is on its heels. And so the Jews, Jesus' disciples, they clearly understand that sin is the door. Sin opened the door to sickness and disease. But they don't know whose sin. Now, folks, they're doing something here that a lot of people will do, and a lot of the times the devil will try to push you to do, and that is identify personal sin as a specific cause of something bad, as the cause of sickness or any other type of destruction. That seems to be the approach that the disciples are taking when they said, Master, who sinned? We know sin is the problem, the ultimate problem. 
But who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Folks, there's only one question they asked, and that was it. Whose sin caused this man to be blind? Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Now, folks, that's the answer to the question that they asked. Now, I know I've stopped in the middle of a verse, and I know also that reading from the King James, there's punctuation in these verses, and most of the time the verses are divided according to what the translators thought the punctuation should be. But in the original Greek text, there is no punctuation. In the original Greek text, there is no uppercase and lowercase letters. It's all a continuous stream. It's not written in chapter and verse. It's all a, con uh, a continuous stream of Greek words. Greek for the New Testament, Hebrews for the Old Testament. And so it was left up to the translators to divide it in chapter and verses and to add the punctuation that they felt was necessary or appropriate to convey the thoughts that the Bible is communicating to us. Now, folks, we've said this hundreds of times, but I want you to be established in this. A translation, any translation of the Scripture, depends on two things. First of all, the translator's knowledge of the language. So the Old Testament translation would be dependent on the knowledge of the Hebrew language, the knowledge of the translators had of the Hebrew language. The translation of the New Testament would be dependent on the translator's knowledge of the Greek language. But then something else comes into play as well. Not just the knowledge of the, the language itself, but the knowledge of the character and the nature of God. Because in the Old Testament Hebrew, there are a lot of words in the Hebrew language. Not just words that are used in the Bible, but all throughout the Hebrew language. There are a lot of words that can mean one thing or the opposite of that one thing. And it's left up to the translators to determine which one it means. Because the, the language itself doesn't give it away. Now the context of the translation or the context of the, the uh, translation under review would sometimes give you a hint as to which way it's intended to be translated or the thought that God was trying to communicate, certainly. But if somebody doesn't know the character and the nature of God, if they're limited and whose knowledge wouldn't be limited when it comes to the character and the nature of God, then some translations are going to be subject to review because of that misunderstanding of God's character. Misunderstanding of who God is and how God operates. This is one major area where that comes into play. Let me read it again. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I read the entirety of verse 3. And that verse was used in Sunday school. I grew up in the Baptist church, Southern Baptist church. And that verse was used in Sunday school to teach us the story of the man that Jesus healed that was blind. Now, the reason he was blind, it was told us, was because God knew that Jesus would come by that, play, that way at a certain point in time. And God wanted to show his healing goodness and his mercy. So he had to make somebody sick to be in place for Jesus to heal him sometime later down the road. But if you change the punctuation, you can identify a much greater understanding of God's character and his nature. 
Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, period. That's the answer to the question. Now, Jesus is going to go a little bit further. He's going to talk about the works that God sent him to do. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, comma, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice that Jesus said that he was sent to do the works of God. Well, what are the works of God that he did? We know that he heals this guy. We'll finish reading throughout the story and all the surrounding things that occurred. But we know that Jesus is identifying the works of God as healing, not sickness. Now, as we've said many, many times before, and we'll say many, many times in the future, God said of himself, I am God, I change not. The Bible is very clear that God is no respecter of persons. The Bible says there's no variableness in God, neither the shadow of turning. That means God is only one way, and that's the only way he'll ever be. So when it comes to sickness and disease, God either causes it or he removes it. He can't do both. We're going to have to decide which is which. We're going to, have to decide which, going to have to decide which side of the sickness and the healing issue God is on. Now, as I said in Sunday school in the Baptist church, they taught us God was on both sides. Now, folks, if God playing in both sides of the street, where sickness is concerned, which, was, which came into the earth through the open door of sin, then that would make God on both sides of the street of the sin issue. The disciples rightly equate sin with sickness. Sin as being the origin of sickness. So if God's on playing both sides of the street where it comes to sickness versus healing, then God has to be playing both sides of the street where sin is concerned. If God is on both sides of the street where sin is concerned, meaning if he uses sin to teach us or to instruct us in life, how can he possibly tell us to resist sin? Because if God is behind sin or sickness, then to resist sin or resist sickness would at least in some cases be resisting God himself. And folks, that just cannot be. God is not working hand in hand with the devil. We know the devil uses sin we know the devil uses temptation to sin to try to influence us and take us out of the blessings of God. Well, if God's doing the same thing with sin and or sickness and disease too, then that makes God a devil himself. But there's an easy fix for this. There's an easy explanation. And that explanation is, Jesus was sent to the earth to destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus heals this man, he destroys the works of blindness that the devil has brought on, into this man's life. Let's go back and read again. His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, period. Well, if it wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents' sin, whose sin was it? Adam's. Adam's sin is the one that opened the door to sickness and disease. Jesus is very plainly and clearly saying, there's not some great lesson 
for this man to learn through the blindness that he was born with. This is not some great test that God is a part of or leading this man into in any way whatsoever. This is simply the work of the devil. It was the work of the devil that deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden and got Adam to go along with her disobedience to God by eating the, tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had commanded them not to. Jesus is just simply saying, not all sickness is the result of personal sin. Certainly not all sickness is the result of family sin. He says, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Period. Giant period, giant exclamation point. Now he's going to talk about the works of God, which he was occupied with while he was here on the earth. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. We know what those works were. He heals the man. So the works of God, Jesus identifies as healing, not sickness. Not making this man sick. Not causing him to be born blind. The works of God that he identifies with is the healing mercy of God. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spit on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. The neighbors therefore, this word neighbors means friends or acquaintances. The neighbors therefore and they which before had seen him that he was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, Well, it looks like him, but, he's, but he said... I am he. Therefore they said unto him, How were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Now folks, somebody had to lead this blind guy from wherever he was to the pool of Siloam where he washed off. And his action of going to do what Jesus said to do was his faith at work. Jesus gave this guy something to believe in and then left it up to him to operate on his own faith. Now, as we said before earlier, of the 19 individual cases of healing, of which this is one, 17 either speak directly to the faith of the individual or imply there was faith at work. This man was healed on his own faith. Jesus initiated it, no question about that. But we don't have any record or any information, anything to suggest that he is where he knows Jesus is going to be. He seems to be in one place begging, which was the regular thing for him. That was his job, I guess. He wasn't waiting for Jesus. Jesus simply passes by. And initiate something to bring the healing works of God to pass in his life. So he gave him something to believe in. This is such an important point. Because the word of God is designed to give you something to believe in. But it's up to you on whether or not you're going to believe. It's up to you whether or not you're going to take action based on what God's word says. Concerning healing or any other blessing of God for that matter. Faith works the same in every realm. 
But God's word is designed to do one and only one thing, and that is to produce faith in the hearers. Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. God's word is designed to create faith, and it will always do it if you'll receive it. It takes no effort on the part of the intellect of man for faith to be produced when we hear the word. The word of God can bypass our minds and go directly into our hearts. Well, how do we know it's bypassed our mind and gone directly into our hearts? By what you say. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to be excited about it. You can simply hear the truth of the word, accept it, and begin to speak and, and or act on it. And faith will bring the results that God intended for it to do. God said, so shall my word, with, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the things whereunto I sent it. That means healing scriptures will always prosper or result in healing. That means prosperity scriptures will always result in prosperity. That means peace scriptures will always result in peace. That means salvation scriptures will always result in salvation. When it's returned unto him. Now, when it first comes to us, then we have an opportunity to return it to him. When this guy agreed to let somebody lead him to the pool of Siloam, he didn't go by himself. He wouldn't have known how to get there. I'm sure it would have been a very dangerous journey for him to try to get from wherever he was to the pool of Siloam without being able to see. Tradition tells us that a 12-year-old boy led him to the pool of Siloam. Whoever it was that led him to the pool of Siloam must have told him who it was that had spit on the ground and put the clay in his eyes. As I said, he's not in a, a meeting place waiting for Jesus to come. He just simply encounters Jesus and acts in faith on what Jesus said. So he comes back from the pool of Siloam and he's healed. People are wondering because this was such a thing that nobody had ever heard of. Other blind people had been healed in Jesus' ministry. Certainly we know that. But the condition of being born blind was something that was considered to be much more difficult, just unheard of. So he identifies to his friends that this is who he is. He identifies how he got healed. Jesus said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. And they brought to the Pharisees him that was aforetime blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, He put clay upon my eyes, and I wash and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keeps not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Folks, not everybody's going to be happy when you get healed. Not everybody is going to rejoice with you when you receive the blessings of God by faith. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, well-meaning perhaps, love God with all their heart perhaps, but there's a lot of Christians 
that would rather you not get anything good from the Lord so that they don't have to think about how and why it came. There's a lot of people that would prefer that nobody would ever receive their healing by faith so that they can continue to believe what they believe or not believe what the, whatever they don't believe concerning the subject of faith in God's word. And there are more people in that category than we would like to imagine. And the people in that category will do everything they can to talk you out of it. You're going to have to decide for yourself how it's going to be for you and in your life. Verse 17, they said unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that opened thine eyes? The blind man said he's a prophet. Prophets were the only ones that performed miracles in Jewish history. He's got to be a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. Notice their accusation. Their accusation is you're putting this on. We know of a blind guy and he looks a lot like you, but you can't be him. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be if you were the guy that was healed? But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we don't know that either. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Some people will go to great lengths to keep you from believing in God. Some people will go to great lengths to shut up anybody that does believe in God. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? Well, he knows who these people are now. He's finally figured it out. And so he answered then and said, I've told you already and you didn't hear me then. Why would you want to hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciples, his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he came from. I, I begin liking this guy a little bit more and more as we go. Verse 30, he said, the man answered, it says, the man answered and said unto them, why herein is a marvelous thing that you don't know from where Jesus came and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. 
You don't know anything, they said. We're the ones that know how this stuff works. The arrogance of these Pharisees is startling. In the face of a miracle, in the face of God showing himself to be merciful, in the face of doing something that nobody had ever done before, these guys are trying to argue for their position because of what they think they know. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That wasn't too big a thing. Jesus had already been cast out himself. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the synagogue, and when they had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? He hasn't heard Jesus preach. He hasn't heard anything Jesus said of himself. If we back up a little bit and look at the last part of chapter 8, Jesus says in some of the clearest terms possible that Abraham saw his day and he rejoiced. They were, the Pharisees were calling themselves children of Abraham. And so he said, if you were of Abraham, you would rejoice just like he did. He saw my day and rejoiced. And they said, you're not even 50 years old yet. And how sayest thou, Abraham saw your day? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It's right at the end of chapter 8. Just a few verses before the story starts with the man born blind in chapter 9. And because of Jesus saying that, the Jews took up stones to kill him. But Jesus passed by through the midst of them. Then he comes to where this blind man was in chapter 9 and heals him. So this guy doesn't know anything about Jesus being the Messiah until Jesus asked, Do you, do that, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into the world that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And he's talking about seeing spiritually. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. In other words, sin wouldn't be counted against you. But now you say, We see. Therefore your sin retaineth. Because they claimed to know God. Speaking of the Pharisees as a group. Now there were some of the Pharisees that believed in Jesus. But they had to do that quietly. You remember in John chapter 3. Talks about Nicodemus. He was one of the Pharisees. He was one of the ruling class. One of the priesthood. He came to Jesus by night. So that they wouldn't find out that he believed in him. He tried to keep it quiet. And it's interesting there are two other places in the New Testament. That refer to Nicodemus. In another context or concerning another event or another happening. And both of those identify him as the one that came to Jesus by night. Jesus prefers us to believe in him in public. While it's day. Not just at night. This guy accepted what Jesus said and worshipped him. The Pharisees 
were the ones and their beliefs, their attitude toward the law and toward God. They were the ones that he came to exact judgment against. Now, not them as individuals, but to judge the sin that's ruling their lives. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10, please. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Paul has been called to Cornelius' household. Cornelius was a Gentile, but he was a good man and he worshiped God. And while he was worshiping God, an angel appeared to him and told him to send to Joppa, the city of Joppa, in a certain street for a certain house where Peter was staying. And the angel told him to send for Peter to come back down to his house to tell him what he needed for he and his family to be saved. Peter's in the the place where God told Cornelius that he would be. And while he's waiting for lunch to be prepared, he goes up onto the housetop and he begins to pray. And all of a sudden he has a vision. He sees in this vision a giant sheet carried by the four corners and in this giant sheet were all kinds of animals both clean and unclean animals and there was a voice from heaven during the vision that says rise Peter slay and eat and Peter refuses because of the unclean animals that are gathered together or represented with the the ones that were clean and he says not so Lord I'll not I've never eaten anything unclean in my life He's still being governed by the Old Testament law. This happened three times. Same thing was said by God. Rise, Peter, slay, and eat. Same thing, Peter responds the same way all three times. Not so, Lord. I've never let anything unclean touch my lips. Then the the vision ends, or what the Bible calls a trance, ends. A trance seems to be different than a vision in the sense that your five physical senses are suspended. Whereas in a vision, you still have same access to your five physical senses as you would normally. So about the time that this trance concludes, this vision ends, Peter's wondering what this means. He knows it's supernatural, but he doesn't know what it means. And then the Lord spoke to him, and the Holy Ghost spoke to him, and said, three men seek thee, Go with them doubting nothing. Well, about that same time, these three guys from Cornelius' house have knocked on Simon the Tanner's house, the door to Simon the Tanner's house, and Peter goes down, and he makes acquaintance with them. Apparently, the journey is too long for him to take and get there before sundown that day, so they left the next morning. And when they got to Cornelius' house, Cornelius has gathered all of his household and all of his friends, and the house is full. And Peter comes in and says, what's going on? Cornelius explains that he saw the vision, saw the angel in a vision. The angel told him to send for him and that he would tell him words. He, Peter, would tell Cornelius in his household words where they could be saved. Peter finally understands that the vision that he saw three times the day before wasn't about clean and unclean animals but that the blood of Jesus cleanses all from sin, both Jew and Gentile. 
So Peter begins to teach Cornelius and his household, all the people that were gathered there. He begins to teach about Jesus. Now the angel could simply have told Cornelius about Jesus, but the angels aren't commissioned to preach the gospel. Man is. There comes a point in time where things change, apparently, during the seven years of tribulation where angels fly through the air proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. But that's not going to happen during this dispensation while the church is still here, during the church age, because man has been commissioned to preach and teach the name of Jesus, not angels. So during Peter's discourse, during his sermon, he comes to verse 38, or what we know of as verse 38, when he's describing Jesus and the work that he did during the three years of his earthly ministry, which Peter was a part of. He says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. A couple of things I want you to see here. He speaks of the anointing that was on Jesus. We know how that worked. Jesus was a man. He had emptied himself of, of all of his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth fashioned as a human being. And because he had laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he had no power in and of himself beyond the power that you and I would have until John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. At his baptism experience, there was a voice from heaven God himself that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Ghost descends from heaven like a dove, like a bird would fly out of heaven and land on somebody's shoulder. And it did, it landed on Jesus' shoulder or upon his head, something, some way or another, it came down on him. And it remained there. You've got all three persons of the Trinity interacting with one another in one specific event. God speaks from heaven, the Holy Ghost comes down upon Jesus, and Jesus is there in the flesh as the Son of God. So when Peter starts talking about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, he begins telling, summarizing, very specifically what Jesus was sent to do. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good. He only did good. That means everything Jesus did was good, and had to be good. Jesus was without sin. There's nothing he could have done that was bad or contrary to God's will. And notice it tells us and it describes a little further about the doing good or the good that he did. How, Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing. Healing had to be included in the things that were good. Now, folks, if God never changes, then healing, if healing was good in Jesus' day, healing has to be good in our day, too. That means healing has to always be good because God never changes. If Jesus did good and healed as representative or an example of God, his character and his nature, which he did, then that means it's always God's character and nature to heal the sick. And that can never change. That can never stop. It always has to be good. So he went about doing good and healing. Now, who did he heal? All that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, there's no clearer picture of who's working which side of the street when it comes to sickness versus healing. Everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. What does that mean about the man that was born blind in John chapter 9? 
his blindness had to be the work of the devil, not God. Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Well, if God is with somebody else, you or me or anybody else, that means it would have to be God's will to heal the sick today too. Or else God has changed and he's become a liar. Thank God he never changes. Jesus healed all that were oppressed of the devil. Everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. That means nobody under any circumstance, under any conditions, could ever have been made sick by God. Because if God had ever made somebody sick, then Jesus healing them would have been contradicting and con working contrary to the will and the purpose and the plan of God. Because his plan never changes. His purposes never change. So if there was just one person in Jesus' life or in his ministry that was sick because God had done something to it, then the healing that Jesus would have brought to them would have countermanded God's works. That's when things go completely upside down. And that's where the modern day church to a great degree has gotten themselves into. Because they haven't accepted the fact that sickness is always of the devil. And for the most part, it seems, at least through my experience, I don't know that I have all the answers on this, certainly. But in my experience, one of the things that causes people to wonder about who's behind sickness and disease is when people see good people, good Christians, Christians that love God with all of their hearts, suffer things at the hand of sickness and disease that they know God would not want them to suffer. Well, folks, they're right. God doesn't want anybody to suffer, ever. He doesn't want anybody to be sick. Certainly not his children. God never wants anybody to suffer. But the fact that somebody, some well-meaning dear saint of God does suffer doesn't mean God has done wrong or performed an injustice against them. It does in no way stand the test of what's behind sickness and disease. God can never be the author of sickness and disease. Folks, if God ever healed anybody, that's the perfect place for you and I to understand and take hold of the reality that he'll heal us too. And that's why the healing events of Jesus' earthly ministry are so profound because it covers the bases. It, I believe the only reason there are 19 cases of individual healings or healing events in the four Gospels is because it gives us a total picture of the healing work of Jesus. John said if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, that has to mean more people were healed in Jesus' ministry than we have record of. That's not all it means, but it have to be included in that, wouldn't it? Well, why isn't there more written? Why don't we have more examples? Why don't we have 30 examples rather than 19? Well, the only thing that I can imagine is the 19 gives us a complete and full picture of God's healing and mercy. It certainly wouldn't hurt anything to have redundant examples of healings, but it wouldn't necessarily make a difference for us either. Because his word has provided everything that we need to believe right, to confess right, 
and to walk in the blessings of God. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Jesus is still in the healing business today, folks. And the word that God has given us pertaining to healing, the truth of Matthew 8, 16 and 17, Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. The reality of what the Bible declares to us and identifies to us of what Jesus did to pay the price, not just for sin and death, for us to be free and to take hold of eternal life, but also the price that he paid, which was his own blood, to redeem our bodies from sickness and disease. That truth will overcome any sickness that comes against you or I. That truth will change whatever circumstance and drive out whatever symptoms of sickness and disease have attached themselves to our bodies. Our body has no choice but to yield to the truth of God's word. That's why your words are so important. Because when we speak God's words, sickness has no power to resist if we'll hold fast the profession of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for making it clear to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with your stripes, we are healed. We thank you that just as in the four Gospels, the faith of the individuals that made them whole serve as an example for us that our faith can make us whole. So, Father, we therefore declare we believe that Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness. And we declare that by Jesus' stripes, we were healed. If we were healed, then we are healed now. Body, we command you to yield to the truth of God's word. We refuse to speak against God's word. We will only speak healing all the days of our lives. We will only speak blessing all the days of our lives. And therefore, we declare our bodies to be well by faith. We declare our bodies are subject to the word of God by the authority that's given unto us as human beings and the authority that Jesus gave in the use of his name. We say, no matter what it looks like, no matter how it feels, we say, we are the healed of God. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. Amen.